sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Praise the Lord, everybody. God is good. Welcome to thy word. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that you are doing at Upper Room Church. God, we know that your presence is among us. And Lord, your will is being done. Lord, let your will continue to be done through us, Lord. We don't want to be left behind. God, we want to follow after you we want to take up our cross and follow you lord i want you to bless everyone who has come everyone who has been faithful and let them leave with a reward the reward of your word something in their heart lord that'll grow into greater greater things in their lives i pray in the name of jesus christ amen well we are in part nine of the book of exodus and when we were last together we looked at the rock which was smitten by moses and produced water and we learned that Jesus was that rock. We learned about the victory over the Amalekites, uh, which was determined by the lifting up of the rod of God in the hands of Moses and how Aaron and Hur helped Moses hold up the rod when he was weary. And Jesus is the rod. He is the rod out of Jesse and the rod of God's power. Then we took a look at the Ten Commandments, uh, in the Bible, and we have now come to certain laws which govern the Israelites when they would come into the land God had promised to them. I want here to do a quick overview, and you have to understand that we're going through the whole Bible. We cannot go through the whole Bible word for word on this side of heaven. When we get to heaven, if you want to come over and we go through the Word of God, we've got plenty of time then. But right now, we don't have that kind of time. That would take at least 10 years. So I will be jumping through some areas, stopping whenever I see the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that fair? Because the goal of thy word is to see Jesus in the Scripture. He said that uh, the law and the prophets spoke about him. And so we are focusing on Jesus Christ in the Scriptures and learning as we go along the way. Amen. So I want you to read the entire book of Exodus and frankly the entire Bible throughout uh, this Through the Bible series. It's not enough uh, just to come and hear what I have to say about it, but my goal, in fact my goal is that if you disagree with me 100% about just about everything I say here, if you disagree with me, but I got you reading your Bible and finding it out for yourself, well I win. Because my goal is to get you to start reading your Bible and learning for yourself and allowing the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to show you His Word. Amen? So we now come to Exodus chapter 20. We were in Exodus 20 last week. We're at verse 22 where we learn about an altar of stone. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, thus, and by the way, they heard his voice. They heard his voice giving the Ten Commandments. I mean, what a mighty, miraculous move of God these people had seen. Like no other nation, no other people on the planet had ever seen. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus uh, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all the places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. Now look at this. You shall not make with thee gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. Within 50 days, they will be making the golden calf. I want you to understand that. With all of the miracles that we have been talking about, they heard the voice of God from heaven. They saw the waters of the Red Sea part. They went over on dry land. They followed a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and God was in that cloud. And they heard his voice. And now they're about to see something that no people have ever witnessed from that day to this day. And they're still going to build the golden calf. I want you to understand that. And the, and, and the story that's being told in the Bible is an admonition to us. Everything that go, they're going through is for us to understand so that what they went through in the physical, the natural realm, we don't do and repeat in the spiritual. And by the way, the church has. We will take a time and go through that and look at the church in parallel to the people of Israel and we're going to find out that we have done exactly what they did only ours was in the spiritual and theirs was in the natural and if thou will make me an altar of stone thou shalt not build it of hewn stone in other words don't don't form the stone for if thou lift up thy tool upon it thou hast polluted it Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. So God wanted an altar untouched by the works of hands. The stones were not to be formed by the hand of man or the tools of man. It was not the works uh, of the one bringing the sacrifice, but the blood of the sacrifice that atoned, or in this case represented the future atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All these people, by the way, who were saved, were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I know, and when I, as a young man, I studied all the different dispensations and all the charts. How many people have seen those? I threw mine away. Why? Because people have only been saved by one way from the very beginning. God counted them righteous. And God could only count them righteous by the blood and and it wasn't so it wasn't the blood of animals it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats but it was the blood of jesus christ that would either take place in the future for their salvation or in our case he paid our price two thousand years ago that's how we're brought in to god it is not by the works of our hands and we recall here the sacrifices of abel and cain where one brought the works of the hand of man and the other brought the blood of the sacrifice. 
Uh, here in the 20th chapter of Exodus, God is still dealing with Israel in a particular way. And we have to understand that God had not yet chosen the Levites, the members of the tribe of Levi and the sons of Aaron, to serve him in the place of the people. God would very soon institute the priesthood, the tabernacle, the Levites, who would serve the priest and safeguard the tabernacle and its furnitures. But at this point, he has not done that. And there will come a point where the altar was not just for any man to make. It needed to be made in a, in a specific way and, and with a specific person, one of the chosen of God. But at this point, he has not done that in Exodus chapter 20. He will do that because of the golden calf. And right now, they're about to have access to God, and then they will lose that access. It is uh, my goal, like I said, to get through Exodus today. Uh, we're going to get through its laws, its regulations, its ordinances, and judgments to bring us to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is, in my estimation, the most important structure ever upon the earth. And I cannot wait to begin our study on the tabernacle. The beauty of the tabernacle is, as we study it, is that it is actually based on a pattern of something that is real and pre-existent to the tabernacle, and that is heaven itself. God is revealing something so important when he made that tabernacle that you could spend the rest of your life studying the tabernacle and still find something new in it every time you study it. It's a beautiful, beautiful object, and it shows the plan of God for our salvation, our redemption, and so much more. And I can't wait to get to it. But right now we're going to look at Exodus 21 through 24, which gives us many of the laws. And I'm just going to jump through it, if that's okay. Uh, the uh, gives us many laws, ordinances, judgments, and decrees. And I chose those words because those are what the words are in, in the Hebrew. There are laws, ordinances, judgments, and decrees. Uh, and then that 21 through 24 will end with the ratification of the covenant, what we call the Old Testament. Remember that testament means covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is also the Ark of the Testimony. The Tent of Meeting is also called the Tent of the Testimony. Why? Because the covenant was kept in the Ark. And that, therefore, it is the testimony, the covenant. These words are used synonymous, synonymously. Um, so now we have the divisions of the law. And I want to go through this very quickly. The law can be divided into three major divisions. We have the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law is typified by the Ten Commandments. It's not the only commandments in the moral law, but that's typified by what we see in uh, chapter 20. It shows us basically what sin is. And sin is always sin. And I risk uh, walking a razor's edge in this class when I announce that we are not under the law. You see, Paul risked the same thing. They said, well, Paul says we're not under the law. And he says we're under grace. And that uh, the, the more sin, the more grace. So Paul wants you to go out and sin so that God will give you more grace. But see, they actually accuse Paul of that. And Paul said, God forbid. Why? Because we are no longer to be instruments of sin. We are delivered from that. But not by the law. 
The law never delivered anybody. If the law could have delivered anybody, these people would have been saved, delivered, perfected. I mean, they heard the voice of God and they're about ready to see the God of Israel. But it did them no good. In fact, the law became a curse to them because anyone who doesn't keep the entire law falls under the curse of the law, according to the book of Deuteronomy. So, chapters 21 through 23 give us what we call the civil law, which are social regulations to regulate the Hebrew commonwealth. Uh, laws about servanthood or slavery. And that's a word that uh, you got to be careful with because yes, there was slavery in the Bible, but it's not the slavery that we know here in America or that we knew here in America, although there was that. I and mean, there were times where slavery was exactly that way. Uh, but in this particular thing in the law, that's not exactly what it's talking about. We'll get into a little bit of that. Uh, we're going to talk about possessions, uh, property rights, rights to things that you own. And then we're going to talk about crimes such as murder, uh, manslaughter, uh, striking your father or striking your mother. These are all laws that are covered in this civil law. And these are described in a way to give guidance to a group of judges because uh, Moses was not the only judge. He had many judges throughout the land and they had to have uh, laws to judge by. And whatever they could not judge would, would go to Moses at this particular time. The third group of laws are the ceremonial laws, and they deal with the religious life. These are purification rituals, uh, the rituals of the priest, uh, the implements of the sacrifices, the ceremonial observations. And these are very important that we no longer keep these and are not under these. They are types that we can learn about God through, and specifically holiness. Our God is a holy God, and the entire book of Leviticus deals with the ceremonial laws of the Levites, and the foundation of that book is holiness. God is holy, and it teaches us what holiness is, the nature of holiness. Uh, for instance, one law would be that if a holy thing touches an unholy thing, the unholy thing isn't made holy. The holy thing is now made unholy. And these are laws that we understand and can use and implement in the spirit. And when we get to the book of Leviticus, we will get into that. And without these ceremonial laws, you would not understand why Jesus did what he did on the cross. Because he fulfilled all of these laws. He fulfilled the Old Testament. Um, and I think it's important to differentiate between what is essentially the laws of Moses and the commandments of God. These are not always the same thing. Uh, there are times where God directly issues a command, such as the Ten Commandments and others. And there are times where Moses, as a ruler, issued a decree and a statute. And I'm going to give you an example of this uh, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. Uh, and it's uh, about the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? It's interesting that Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning. He doesn't go back to the law of Moses. And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become 
one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a, certif a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So now they're using the Bible against what Jesus said. They're using uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So we see here that the, according to Jesus, the judgment of Moses on this matter of divorce came from Moses as the leader of Israel. It did not come from God. Moses allowed it because of the hardness of their heart. So we have to remember that Moses was the leader of a nation. And he, he made laws from his own judgment and he made laws that were given to him directly from God. And that's what Jesus says here. And uh, that this was not a commandment of God. And then Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So we have here a very strict law, much more strict than what they had. They could divorce their wife for any, man, any, any reason at all. They just didn't like her. They gave her a bill of divorce. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't divorce your wife except for sexual immorality. And if you marry another, you commit adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So we find the command of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 through 4, which says that if a man no longer favors his wife, he can give her a certificate of divorce. According to Jesus, this was not a commandment of God, but an allowance of Moses. It was, in other words, a civil law, not a religious law. So we have to differentiate when, we, when reading the law about what is being said and by whom. God spoke and wrote the Ten Commandments. Other laws were by Moses and were a guide to live as a nation and a guide by which the judges judged. And while we're here, if you have ever been divorced, the text in Matthew chapter 19 may have been very troubling for you. It is for a lot of Christians who have suffered the terrible consequences of divorce. A divorce is terrible. I don't care who it happens to or how it happens or why it happens. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And we want marriages to last and be together. But many divorced people have been living with a guilty conscience, though they were divorced for no reason of their own, especially if it happened before the blood. All right? Well, I was divorced 10 years ago, and maybe I was the party that did wrong. But now I'm in the church. Maybe I should not remarry. Well, that's between you and your pastor. Amen. I'm not your pastor. I'm just the guy up here teaching thy word. So listen to your pastor, not me. But uh, you may have been told that divorce is always wrong. And if you are divorced for any reason, you are no longer free to marry. But I want you to follow this law with me all the way through. Will you? As if we're still under the law. Okay, a man and a woman get married under the law. They are bound together by a covenant that is for life. Now, if one of them dies, are they still bound by that covenant? No. The, that person is now, the, uh, the remaining party is now free to marry. So what is the punishment under the law for adultery? Death. So if we are following the law, the one who committed adultery 
is considered dead under the law. Aren't they? So the other one is free to remarry because under the law, the offending partner would have been executed. Do you understand that? And what happens to a person who's been living in the world who comes to the cross? The Bible says they're dead. And because they die, they are no longer, as Paul said, married to the law because we were under the law as long as we were alive. But when we died, it separated us from being under the law. We are free from the law in Christ. So there is no blanket uh, text. There's no blanket rule that will cover every situation of daily living, of marriage, of family. Uh, And these issues are to be dealt with on an individual basis with your pastor. This is why God gave the church authority. And by the way, the church has more authority than is exercised nowadays. You aren't supposed to take your brother to court. You're supposed to take your brother to the church, and the church has the authority to decide. Do you know that's what Jesus said? And there are situations that are gray areas that maybe the law may not cover or the, or, or, or the Bible may not really, really give us a full, clear picture of what to happen in this individual case. Take it to your church, take it to your pastor, and listen to what they say, because that is biblical. The Bible has given authority to the church to rule in cases like this. Did you know that? Did you know that if you do wrong to your brother, your brother is supposed to go to you, and he's supposed to say, you did wrong by me. And then you, you shouldn't make it right. And if, if, you're, if he refuses to make it right, then you come with two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to make it right, you take it to the whole church. Did you know that? That should be enough to stop it right there. Brother, we're going to be standing in front of the church here in a minute. And did you know that then the church will rule? They will rule because the church is a ruling body. That's what the word means. Ecclesia. It's a ruling body. And if that brother refuses the judgment of the church, he is to be treated as a publican and a sinner. He is no longer in the body. That's Bible. And if we were to follow that, there would be a lot fewer problems. But I want to say that the church has authority. And sometimes we need to exercise the authority in situations in people's lives when maybe the Bible is not as clear as it should be. The Bible has given us power and authority in order to make decisions like that. Amen. And that's kind of foreign to our culture, right? And then the Bible talks about rules for slaves, which is also foreign to our culture, as we do not have slaves. Thank God we don't. Uh, When we think of slavery, we tend to think of slavery after the social models which were excessively abusive, like what happened here in the United States. And uh, there was an economy in Israel and in other cultures at the time in which slavery or servanthood really is what a lot of this was, was part of the normal structure, the normal social fabric. And uh, these laws are actually pretty protective of these people. Uh, In both the Old and New Testaments, the words used to denote slaves did not carry the same connotations that they do today. And only by understanding the biblical text and the cultures 
uh, can we understand really what's happening here in the Bible. The stealing and selling of human beings, such as been common throughout human history, is a capital offense. That means it's punishable by death, according to the Old Testament. You could not kidnap a human being and sell them into slavery. And the return of fugitive slaves, so if you had slaves that ran away from their masters and you returned them, that was also against the law. You were not to return a fugitive slave in the Bible. And in almost every instance, the kind of slavery that we see in the Old Testament law was debt slavery, where an individual would offer labor, he would either have an outstanding debt or he was completely uh, destitute. And what he would do is he would give him, basically make him uh, himself an indentured servant. And he would serve for six years. His master would provide him a place to live, food to eat, and take care of him. And then after, on the seventh year, he would go free, and his pastor would actually give him provisions to go and basically start the life that he wants to start. And hopefully by then he might have collected a little bit of money and got himself out of debt. And that's what most of this was. Uh, Exodus 21, uh, verse 1. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant six years, he shall serve. And in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go, by out, go out by himself. But remember, at the seventh year, the slaves went free. So these people would have gone free anyway. They would have had to serve the remaining time. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So a man could voluntarily become a servant or a slave of love. And it's an interesting thing. He was a bond slave or a bond servant, depending on your translation. And he wore an earring. And he'd wear that earring with great pride because it meant that he belonged to his master's house and that he was a trusted servant. Sounds foreign to us. And this is a concept that he was attached to the house. It was a symbolic act. Remember that the Israelites had recently put blood on the doorpost to keep their firstborn alive. And that's Passover. So the doorposts were viewed as a place of covenant by blood. Now let's look at what James said in James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, who is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the half-brother. This is not James the apostle, this is James the brother of Jesus. And he called himself a bond servant of God. That's what he's talking about. I'm bound to his house by my free will. I am a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter calls himself a bondservant and apostle. He puts bondservant before apostle. He says, I am bound 
to this house by my free will. These are Jews. They know what they're talking about. And Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So these were men who understood the law, and they were calling themselves bondservants, slaves of love who voluntarily chose to give their entire life to their master and to their master's house. Amen. I want to be a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care about my life. I care about his life and his house. Someone say amen to that. Amen. Uh, and there are rules for homicide or injury, and you'll find that this is an agreement with the law that was given to Noah in the book of Genesis about taking a man's life. If you take a man's life, you'll pay for that with your life. But here we see a distinction between premeditation and what we call manslaughter. There is no pardon. There's no sacrifice for intentional murder. The only answer was death, the death of the person who committed the murder. Uh, verse 12, he that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. And But now we have a provision called the place of refuge or the city of refuge, cities of refuge. At first there were three and then there were six. And uh, verse 13 here says, And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place where whither he shall flee. Now, this is kind of uh, written kind of strangely, and we can get into other pl places in the Bible that talk about this. But basically, it comes down to this. If you're swinging an axe, and you're out in the field, and you didn't hate uh, this man uh, three days before, is the rule. Three days Within three days, you didn't hate this guy, okay? Uh, there was no hatred going on. You're swinging the axe, and the axe slips. The head comes off the axe, and it kills this man. Well, nowadays that's called manslaughter, right? And you can still go to prison for manslaughter depending on, did you know about the acts? You know, what did you know? What's the knowledge? Well, in this particular case, there were no police. Nobody called the police and said, hey, I need you to come out and investigate this. What there was was say, uh, Brother Pepe is here and I accidentally killed Brother Pepe's brother. Well, Brother Pepe is one of those guys who's given to temper. Now, he's really not, but let's just say he is. Well, he's going to kill me. And you know what? He has a right to kill me. Under the law of Noah. I took the life of a man. And so he, what he is now called is the Goel, which is the kinsman redeemer. He is the, he, the avenger of blood in this particular case. Goel is actually used for different things. But he is the kin that has the right to pursue and avenge the blood of this person, of me, because I accidentally killed his brother. So I have, now we're racism. The race is that somebody's going to go and tell Pepe that I killed his brother. And it might have been an accident, but I killed him, okay? And so the race is for me to get to the city of refuge before Pepe gets to me. Because if Pepe kills me, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. And he's the pursuer of blood. He had the right to do it. It's not murder. Strange, right? So I have to get to the city of refuge and I have to plead my case with them and then those judges decide whether this was murder or whether it was manslaughter. And I can stay in the city of refuge and the region around it 
For the, as long as I'm in that area, the pursuer of blood cannot get me. And it's an interesting thing because it's like, what a strange concept. But here's another stranger concept. When the high priest died, now what his death had to do with anything, your guess is as good as mine, right? Because it's kind of a strange thing. When the high priest of Israel died, the people who were in the city of refuge could go home. And the pursuer of blood could no longer take their lives. It would be murder if they did. But if that pursuer of blood could get you to come out of that city, he's got you. He can kill you. Strange concept, right? Well, when we get to numbers, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I want to say this just to kind of whet your appetite. Was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ murder or manslaughter? Anybody know? It might have been murder for some, right? But what did he say? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. It could be manslaughter. And there might be a city of refuge. And then it, it might be very important that the high priest died. And we're going to get to that in the book of Numbers because it covers it a lot more closely. And I just don't want to take the time for now. Is that okay? So that's where we have the concepts of this, these cities of refuge. And you will see those throughout your Bible uh, where people have to run to them in order to be saved. Um, and of course, it's there for a purpose. And I'll tell you what the purpose is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Right? So there are other penalties listed here that are capital offenses, not just uh, murder. Smiting one's father or mother is a death penalty. Kidnapping and selling a person into slavery, death penalty. Cursing one's father or mother, death penalty. There are civil laws for restitution when one man injures another man or another man's animal hurts, kills a man or another man's animal. And there are property rights that are discussed. It, this covers theft and restitution of properties and rules for animals and fields that are owned by individuals and their families. And please read these because you're going to see a lot in there. If, if you look at it in the right way, and the right way is put Jesus in the center of it, you will learn something. And, of course, idolatry and witchcraft were not tolerated. Idolatry and witchcraft were under the death penalty. If you sacrificed unto any god, you should be utterly destroyed. There were laws that protected the poor, the widow, and the fatherless, as well as strangers living among them. These are people who would not marry strangers. But if strangers were living among them, these people were protected and given the right to glean in the fields and and uh, you could not for instance you when you when you did your harvest you didn't go through twice you left what was lying lying so that the poor and the destitute the widow and the fatherless and the stranger in the land could come and have something to eat and god cared very much about this there are even laws about uh how to uh to, to harvest an animal to eat. If you come up on a bird in the nest and it's nesting with its young, you can't just take her and eat her and leave those birds to die. God's eye is on the sparrow, the Bible says, right? He looks and he sees and he doesn't want these birds to suffer. And there are even laws like that. Now, and we have the Sabbath of the land. And we don't want to confuse the Sabbath of, of the land with the seventh day rest. 
God is fixated on the number seven. Well, I want to do a class on that, when we, and we will. Um, we're going to hit it, trust me. And God has a rest on the seventh day. Now God has a rest for the land on the seventh year. You can sow your land for six years, and on the seventh year, your land must rest. One of the reasons why God sent Israel into captivity for 70 years is because for 490 years they had not allowed the land to rest. So God let, let the land rest, and every year was for the Sabbath that they missed, the Sabbath of the land. God really cares about His Word, and that's why they were in captivity 70 years, so the land could have its rest, because you didn't let it rest for 490 years. So I'm going to give it its rest. You're going to Babylon, and then you're going to be over there for 70 years, letting the land to rest, and you'll come back. See, we've got to be very careful with that. It also teaches us that God understands numbers, so it's very important that we look at those numbers and do the math, and you're going to find out some astounding things. Like, for instance, that Daniel predicted to the very year, some say the very day, that Jesus Christ would ride on the colt, the foal of a donkey, into Jerusalem just by simply doing the math. And yes, it has to do with sevens. But we'll get to that when we get to the book of Daniel. And then every uh, seven times seven, so every, time, every seven times seven, so seven years times seven, 49 years plus one, we'd have the year of Jubilee. So on the 50th year, after seven sevens, or seven Sabbaths of the land, on the 50th year was what they call Yobel, or the, we call it the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, all slaves go free. It doesn't matter if it's been seven years or not. If you were made a slave the day before, you go free. Isn't that wonderful? All land, see, nobody could sell land. You could lease land. But the land belonged, if you were an Israelite, to you and your fathers. It remained in your family. And I could rent you my land. I could say, Brother Pepe, I'm, I've got this field over here. I'm not doing anything with it. I'll rent it to your, you for, you know, until the year of Jubilee. And if it's 40 years, that's a good deal. I mean, you work it for 40 years. But if the year of Jubilee is only two years from now, well, the year of Jubilee, it comes back to me. And so that's how they would plan their real estate. Like, okay, I'll rent it for you. But see, it'll always go back at the year of Jubilee. On the year of Jubilee... Everyone returned to the homes of their fathers and to their inheritance. I don't want to get into it, but I believe that might have been what was happening uh, during the time that Jesus was born. I know there was a census, but if you were an emperor, you would choose a time to have a census when the people were already returning to the lands of their fathers, wouldn't you? Well, that would be the year of Jubilee, wouldn't it? Now, I'm not saying it's that way, but I, I do. there's something in the back of my mind saying it probably was, and one of these days I'm going to see it, and I'm going to be very excited, and then you'll know about it. But there are many other laws, there are many decrees, there are many ordinances, and many regulations there. Hallelujah. Read it. Understand it. And now we come to Exodus chapter 24. Hallelujah. And this is where Israel... And God ratified the covenant, the law of Moses. And remember when I said it was arrogant for Israel to agree to keep the law, because that's what they did. Oh, sure, we'll keep the law. Whatever you tell us to do, we'll do it, Lord. 
Hallelujah. You know why? That's self-righteous. They were self-righteous. And I know that sounds like a mean thing to say, but they're about ready to build a golden calf. Think about that. They're about ready to worship another God after all this. Say, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. I want to call this section, and I was talking to the pastor earlier, and I know I'm wrong because there's nothing new under the sun, but I have never heard any Bible commentator teach what I'm about ready to teach. So this might be a Ricky Taylorism. You can agree with me or not. But I want to call this section the first and last suppers. The first and last suppers. I And uh, we, we go to uh, verse 1 of 24. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, you'll find out, perish before the Lord because they later bring strange fire to the Lord. And seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. There's a separation. They can't go to the holy God. Why? Because they did not have a covenant with him yet. You can't approach God without a covenant. Oh, it's wonderful to be in the presence of God, isn't it? But you cannot come into the throne room of God, into the very presence of a holy God, unless there's a covenant. And they were not allowed to go. Moses could go, but they could not go. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said will we do. We will keep the whole law. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he built an altar. He built 12 pillars. Somebody say 12. 12. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood. Someone say blood. And put it in basins. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant. Someone say covenant. covenant. And read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said will we do. No, you won't. Can I tell you, you won't either. Brother, all I need is a Ten Commandments. Hallelujah. And the Sermon on the Mount. Then when you get to heaven, you get to tell Jesus to move over because you just earned the right to be on his throne. Okay, because you did it because you have to be completely perfect. Completely perfect. Has anybody ever hated anybody? Anybody. I have. Boy. And I've had good reason to hate, too. I'm telling you. I, it's, I've had good reason to hate. I mean, they did some awful things. And that makes me a murder. What does the Old Testament says happens to a murder? He dies. Is there any provision under the law to cancel that? Can I go give a sacrifice to a priest? I can't keep the law. I've already broken the law to a point where I am dead under the law. The, the law has me. You're dead. You're, we're, we're looking for you. we got the avenger of blood running after you right now. You see? Except I'm not because I died. I died with Jesus. Now he can't do anything with me. Amen. But so... All we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood 
and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So they now had a covenant and could approach the God of Israel. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and they saw the God of Israel. They saw him. Why? They had a covenant. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Why? They had a covenant. Also they saw the God of Israel and did eat and drink. Someone say, eat and drink. Say, they saw the God of Israel. Okay, Hebrews 9, chapter 18 through 22. I've only got about 10 minutes here, so I've got to less than 10. So we got to hurry up. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and a hyssop. Water, scarlet, wool, and a hyssop. And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. That's going to come later. So if we put together Exodus chapter 24 and Hebrews chapter 9, we get a detailed view of everything Moses did to seal a covenant with God and the nation of Israel. These are the elements of the covenant. The altar, the twelve pillars, the blood of the covenant, the water, the hyssop, the scarlet cloth, and the food. It's funny how that's seven. They saw the God of Israel with their own eyes. And there was no doubt he was one of the three visible types that we talked about. The theophanies, the manifestations, Malach Yehovah, Devar Yehovah, the exalted Yehovah. So the word of God, the angel of God, or the exalted Jehovah. We read in Isaiah how Isaiah saw uh, God, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And we read in John how John said that these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Who was John talking about? Jesus. So we are looking at Jesus, who is the God of Israel. The, the children of Israel were seeing him in his pre-incarnate state. Uh, the word of God became flesh. But the Word of God is seen all throughout the Old Testament. You understand? So the Word of God is Jesus. And in John chapter 1, John identified Jesus as the Word which was God and with God, who is in the beginning with God, who made all things and who became flesh and dwelt among us. All right? Now, these are the elements of the second covenant. So we have the first supper where the children of Israel saw the God of Israel, they sat down and they eat. Why? And they ate because they had a covenant. Now Matthew 26, 20 to 28, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Twelve apostles, twelve pillars. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then he goes on, and as they were eating, they ate with the God of Israel. Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my blood. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all, or this is my body, drink of it all, for, uh, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, the blood, 
which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Moses had the blood for the old covenant. I have the blood for the new covenant. And in this passage, there are 12 apostles. There's a symbol of his blood in the cup. Traditionally, the Passover wine was mixed with water, by the way. And they ate the Passover meal with Jesus. Immediately afterwards, he goes to prayer. And then he is taken and he is stripped and they put a scarlet robe upon him. Moses, according to Hebrews 9, used a scarlet cloth. And in John 19, 29, the Bible says, Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it up on hyssop. Moses used hyssop, according to Hebrews chapter 9, to ratify the covenant with blood and with water. And the cross is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices that have ever been on the altar of the Lord. So we see here that the elements of the old covenant, the first supper, where they saw God, and the Bible says they sat down to eat, can I tell you that whenever you see something strange like that, you say, huh, why? That's a strange thing. Why did they sit down to eat? Because there's going to be another supper. The last supper. And all of this was going to be played out. The new covenant also has the altar, the cross. The 12 pillars, the 12 apostles. The blood of the covenant, Jesus' blood. The water. The hyssop, by the way, water came out of his side. If you don't like my analogy of them uh, mixing the water with the blood. Out of his side, water and blood flowed. The hyssop, the scarlet cloth, and they saw the God of Israel, and they ate with him. The new covenant, the old covenant, the first supper, the last supper. Thank you, Jesus, for that word. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We praise you, knowing that you are God who knows the in from the beginning. Lord, you wrote this word with the end, our redemption in mind. And we thank you for your blood. We thank you for the covenant that is so much better than the old covenant, Lord. The words of God written up on our hearts and not on tablets of stone. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I